this morning as we advance through our text in 1 Timothy, we transition from Paul's condemnation of false teaching to Paul's thankfulness for being rescued from false teaching himself. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, A Glorious Salvation, A Testimony of Christ. For those of you using the Bibles in front of you, you can find today's text on page 932. Um, And please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hermanus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you grateful that we can worship you in this way through the hearing and proclaiming of your word. Father, I do pray that you grant us grace to hear your word, to hear your truth this morning, and grant us grace to understand it and grace to apply it, Lord. And finally, Lord, just grant us grace to see your Son as we look upon your truth today. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Many years ago in a local art gallery, an exhibition was to take place. Artists from that area submitted their own paintings. But one of those paintings came without a title. It was a majestic picture of Niagara Falls, or rather a majestic painting. With its water flowing endlessly over the falls, the gallery owner decided to title the work More to Follow. On average, 3,160 tons of water flow over Niagara Falls every second. To put that in perspective, that's 75,750 gallons of water spilling over the edge every second. That volume may vary slightly throughout the year depending on various factors at any given time. And yet Niagara Falls continues to flow at a tremendous rate continuously. A person can plan a trip at any given time of the year and expect that they will see water flowing. This endless flow has continued for generations. It's going ongoing all the time. 
And what it becomes for us is a picture of God's grace. Just as the water continues to flow without ever stopping, there is never a thread of God's grace running in short supply either. We come to our text this morning with this grace of God in full view. As Paul frequently does in his letters, he includes a thanksgiving. First and foremost, he's always giving thanks to the Lord, grateful for the Lord's work both in his life and grateful that the Lord has allowed him to work throughout his life. He called Paul to salvation, and we know that Paul is grateful for that. And then he tasked Paul to proclaim salvation, and Paul seems to be grateful for that as well. The unique aspect of our text or our letter this morning is that Paul does not mention thankfulness for the church, as he often does in his other letters. Actually, even more strange is that Paul arrives at his thankfulness here. Usually he gives an introduction, a quick, you know, I am Paul, the apostle, writing to you. And then he gives his thankfulness. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he launches right into a condemnation of the false teaching, pointing us to the seriousness of what is taking place. But now he takes a moment and he reserves that time here to offer praise and thanksgiving. And he does so in the form of giving his own testimony. He begins with a state of humility. And in that humility, he shares who he is in order to share who Christ is. This morning, we look upon verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1. And I want you to notice four aspects of Christ is. First, we see Christ as the enabler of grace. Second, he is the delegator of grace. Third, we will see that Christ is the judge of grace. And finally, we will see that Christ is the mediator of grace. So notice first, Christ is the enabler of grace. An enabler is one who facilitates a particular behavior in another person. Most often, we think about this in negative terms, as in a person who's helping somebody else continue in a wrong behavior. As an example, we see this concept much in the area of addiction. We consider often a person who is struggling with alcohol, just as an example. And that person may have friends who enables that person to continue on by urging them to frequently party with them, or maybe to always have one more. In this way, that person is an enabler, or those people are enablers as a group. But enablers don't have to enable negative behaviors only. Enablers can enable positive behaviors. This concept becomes critical to the Christian life because it shows us that the people around us have influence in our lives. This is what drives that phrase, in the world, but not of the world. Because that conveys the idea that if we are immersed in the world, we will probably look like the world because the world has influence. Those of us who call ourselves disciples of Christ, then, we would be wise to surround ourselves with an enabler or with a group of people who will enable Christ-likeness in our lives. That begins first by spending time with Christ. 
the very enabler of grace who Paul writes of here. He says, I thank him, I thank Christ, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's ability to labor for the Lord Jesus Christ comes from being strengthened by the Lord Jesus Christ. How does the Lord strengthen Paul, though? It begins first at salvation. Actually, even back up, it begins in Ephesians 3.8. Paul writes to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It begins that Paul is strengthened by grace, but then how is he strengthened by that grace? That begins at salvation. At least according to Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. At salvation, granted by grace through Christ, sinners like us are freed from the consequences of sin. No longer do we live under that weight of eternal punishment. We're freed from condemnation. That is to say that we are strengthened by being freed from the burden and the weight of the law. But grace not only strengthens through salvation, it strengthens through sanctification. Grace not only frees us from the condemnation of sin, but grace also frees us from the consequences of sin, from the enslavement of sin. It is God's grace or Christ's grace that strengthens us to overcome sin. Paul has experienced this himself, and we see it in Romans 6, 15 through 18. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart of the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. By his death and burial and resurrection, Christ brings his people from life under the law to life under grace. We see that in verse 15. And then that concludes with verse 18. Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Under the law, we were constrained to obedience. That is to say that we are obligated to keep the law. The problem is we can't keep the law. <coughs> Consider the example of someone who, in great frustration, lashes out at someone else, doing so verbally. Maybe they throw in a few foul words and some derogatory remarks. This happens so frequently that we actually think nothing of it. That's really the character of a lot of relationships these days. But the law convicts that person of blasphemy. That's probably not what you expected. But the law convicts that person of blasphemy for speaking so harshly <laughs> against both God's creation and somebody made in God's image. 
At the same time, maybe under the law, that person repents. They make restitution, and, and then maybe they start to kind of overcome that until they do it again. And how do I know that they will do it again? Because that frustration and that anger and that blasphemy, that's merely a symptom of a heart issue. And that heart issue could be a number of reasons. This is an example. I didn't give you enough information to tell you what those may be. But ultimately, there's an underlying sin issue in the heart. Maybe the person felt disrespected. Maybe there was something else that person wanted to do. And so they got upset about just being interrupted. Whatever the issue is, the anger is the result of having placed something higher than the desire to please and love God. So now this person has another problem. Under the law, he or she is not only a blasphemer, but now is an idolater. Because they made something or replaced God with something more dear. Maybe that's respect. Maybe that's comfort. Could be preferences. But that's the point. We saw this just several weeks ago. Under the law, we're always convicted. We can never fulfill the law. But the grace of Christ here strengthens one by transferring a person from a liability of the law to a love of Christ. The distinction is that having received this pure, unadulterated grace, having been affected by it or impacted by it, the grace frees a person from being bound to the law. And so that they don't have to obey the law, because they can't, but rather they want to obey Christ out of a love for Christ. And that leads to something very crucial. By the grace of Christ, one is set free from sin and voluntarily becomes a slave to righteousness instead. That is, they are strengthened in their righteousness by the grace of Christ. This is the gospel that the false teachers missed. They used the law unlawfully, and they never allowed it to take them to the gospel as we saw last week. But here's the work of Christ. In Paul's life, we see it. He is the enabler of grace. He strengthens through grace. Jesus calls upon his disciples to make more disciples, reminding them that he is with them until the very end of the age. But ask how many people are making disciples, and most people aren't. And what's the response? Why aren't they? The typical answer is something like, I don't know enough, or I don't have a response to their questions. What do you notice about those responses? It's one word. I. I can't. I don't. I won't. Where are those people finding their strength? In whose strength are they relying upon? Their own. It's a reliance upon self. But what we learn from Paul is Christ gives strength. How? Through grace, 
Christ is the enabler of grace. This truth directly relates to that very next point then, that it has bearing on this very next part of the verse. Paul goes on to write, he says, you know, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I want you to notice not only is Christ the enabler of grace, but now he is the delegator of grace. The delegator of grace. In Acts chapter 9, we are told the story of Paul's conversion. While on the road to Damascus, the Lord, in a very dramatic fashion, he calls upon Paul first to receive salvation by grace. And then he calls upon Paul to be a proclaimer of salvation by grace. If you don't know the story, Christ strikes Paul blind in Acts 9. And he speaks to him, saying, I am the Lord Christ whom you are persecuting. It's kind of a plot twist here because the very people that Paul is persecuting are the very people that now Paul has to depend upon because he's blind. He's then led to a disciple named Ananias who will restore Paul's sight. And then for a time, Paul will go away and sit under teaching before embarking on a ministry of his own. But this ministry is not sought by Paul. He tells Timothy here, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me and appointed me to his service. We know this to be true because of the conversation between the Lord and Ananias about Paul. In fact, the Lord has to calm Ananias' fears. Paul has a reputation, a reputation of persecution. And at this point, he's saying that Paul is coming to you, or you need to go to Paul, and Ananias, rightfully so, is fearful. But the Lord reassures Ananias that this is all part of his plan. And then in 9.15, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord offers some clarity, and he says this, Go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God is bringing to fruition a plan that he has already put in place long ago. And we see here that Paul is grateful for this. Through his letters, Paul always gives the impression that he is amazed that God has entrusted him with such a responsibility. The thankfulness of Paul comes from the brokenness of Paul. He shares rather openly in 1 Timothy, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. A prideful person will say this ministry is privileged to have me. But Paul's attitude is opposite. Having been the chief of sinners, Paul's now overwhelmed that he should be considered worthy of any ministry at all. I think that conviction drives his service for the Lord. Because he considers himself so unworthy, he considers ministry a great privilege. And because he considers ministry a great privilege, He's really willing to put himself on the line for the Lord's work. That's contrary to the attitudes of so many people today. 
They'll serve, but only under their conditions. They say, I will serve my way. I will serve when I want to serve. I will serve where I want to serve. And I will serve how I want to serve. But something we should appreciate about Paul is that he doesn't adopt this attitude, the ministry doesn't deserve me. Instead, his attitude is, I don't deserve the ministry. The perspective is not that he has any right or any entitlement to be involved in the Lord's work, but instead that he has been granted, he's been entrusted to the Lord's work. By the Lord's grace, Paul has been delegated the task to proclaim grace. And this is where Christ's role as enabler of grace and his role as delegator of grace intersect. Paul writes, he has assigned this role because God judged him, or Christ judged him faithful for it. How can that be? We just saw that God has assigned Paul this task long ago, based on Acts 9. He hasn't even had time to prove himself faithful. And yet he's already being delegated a steward of God's grace. In fact, judging by that conversation between Christ and Ananias in Acts chapter 9, it it sounds like Paul has been delegated this task long before the interaction ever took place, long before Paul even came to Christ in faith. Paul's testimony in that moment is anything but faithful. In Acts chapter 8, he was persecuting anybody who abides by the faith that He's now supposed to be faithful of himself. So it can't be that Paul was faithful then. And it can't be that Paul has a testimony of faithfulness already. It had to be that he will be strengthened by the enabler of grace. So that he would be faithful, as we read in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. And then upon that... He's delegated a ministry of grace. This becomes very important for the Christian life because it means that God is not calling people based on themselves. First and most obviously, he's not calling people to faith based on the fact that they are a good person or they've proven themselves faithful already. I hope we know that. Actually, quite the opposite is true. He's calling them according to what he's going to make them. But it also means that God will not call people for something that he's not prepared to equip them for. As one commentator says, God's commandments are God's enablements. This doesn't mean it won't stretch or challenge us. In fact, it likely will challenge us because it's only when the Lord calls us to do something very difficult that we will rely on his enablement and not on our own strength. As a new believer, one of my ongoing doubts at that time was in my own ability to not deny Christ if I were ever pressed, oppressed, or persecuted. We read stories of those who don't buckle under very intense pressure. And I always thought, I can't do that. But as the Lord strengthened me by grace through the years, I have less doubts about that because 
I have seen how the Lord has strengthened me in other ways to not deny him in situations now that I may be bold and declare him even when people disagree. I share this because I think a lot of people have those doubts. I think a lot of people have those same testimonies. Two weeks ago, I was with someone who had been recently kicked out of a country that is antagonistic towards Christianity. And what happened is that this country had broken into the database of a particular U.S. missions agency. That's important because that means that a government of a foreign country broke into a, an entity based here in the United States, into their computer system, and they gathered the names of all the missionaries that were stationed in their country. This happened several years ago. And then they used that list, and rather than immediately round everybody up, they began to follow them. They, they put their agents on them. And they've learned that one of those guys was going to be headed out of the country in about two weeks. He was flying out. For what purpose? I don't know. Was it to come home visit? I don't know. But he was leaving. So rather than arrest him, they, they waited. And when he started to go through immigration and, and everything at the airport, then they got him. And in his, heart, in his backpack was a hard drive, encrypted, secured, but eventually they broke that. And on that hard drive was a list of 76% of the missionaries of that organization in their country. And they went after them all. They all got expelled. Interestingly, this friend of mine that I was with, he didn't leave because his name wasn't even on that list. He wasn't part of those 76%. And yet they still caught up with him. And they arrested him, and for eight days they interrogated him. If you ask him his testimony, he would tell you everything I just told you, that the Lord called him to this ministry, that the Lord equipped him for this ministry, and the Lord called him to be persecuted for this ministry in this case. Christ had delegated to this friend a ministry of grace and then enabled him with grace to withstand when times got difficult. Indeed, he said he didn't share information. The only time he finally started sharing information was when they threatened his wife and kids. And then even at that point, he didn't even give them information they didn't already have. He gave them information he knew they had or of people that were already gone. The Lord is, is both the enabler of grace and the delegator of grace. And, and those two go together. He delegates to us a ministry that will proclaim his grace. And sometimes that will result in a challenge. But he never does it without enabling grace as well. The Lord Jesus Christ imparts grace, delegating to his followers a ministry of grace. And then he enables them with that grace to fulfill their calling. I want you to look at our text now and see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the judge of grace. Paul begins to describe himself here. We already read it. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. When John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, he did so both distraught over his con condition, but overwhelmed 
by God's grace. That song has aged very well to the point that it's still being sung today and is still well known. But some people only know the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. If you know that song, you should have noticed that those words were different. That's sometimes something about texts that age well. Eventually, people try to adapt them to the culture. And those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me, they're not untrue. We just saw them in verse 12, that the Lord strengthens with grace. But they softened the intention that John Newton had. And they softened the reality of our need for a savior, which was captured very well by the original words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The apostle Paul never softens who he is. He gave his testimony in Galatians in our our scripture reading this morning. He said, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal a son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. His testimony in Acts is a little bit more severe. In Acts chapter 26, he writes, or he doesn't write, he's giving his testimony publicly, and he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. His own testimony is that he was a zealot who denied Christ vehemently. And in violence, he tried to get others to do the same. One commentator notes that the description given by Paul about himself It's a word set. There's a combination of words here, blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And that word set indicates a person who is in pride and in insolence deliberately and contemptuously mistreats and wrongs and hurts another person just for hurting sake and to deliberately humiliate the person. It speaks of treatment which is calculated publicly to insult and openly to humiliate the person who suffers it. That's an awful description, and yet that's essentially what Paul tells us he is. But despite who he is, Paul has been judged faithful, as we've already seen. But now he notes here, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. It needs to be said that by noting that he was ignorant, Paul is not justifying his behavior. In fact, we know that Paul is repentant because he freely describes himself and he freely describes a sin in the very same words that God would use, which is a characteristic of genuine repentance. 
The mention of his ignorance is an admission that he was just uninformed and he was trying to protect the religion that he held so dear. But Paul received mercy, not because he was ignorant, but despite the fact that he was ignorant. There are really two types of sin. There's rebellion, which you admonish, and there's ignorance, which you teach through. For Paul, despite his ignorance, the Lord is a judge of grace. Not judging Paul based on his past persecution of Christ, but based on his current position in Christ. And Paul says, I was shown mercy. Puritan Thomas Goodwin says, I was bemercied, is how he puts it. The Lord bestowed on him such mercy that he was bemercied. He was filled with the mercy. In light of the false teachers that Paul and Timothy are trying to confront, the testimony that Paul gives here actually should offer hope. If the Lord is gracious towards someone like Paul, offering mercy and transforming his life, then certainly the Lord is able to offer mercy towards those same false teachers and transform their lives. When you consider all that Paul has done and how vehemently he opposed God and his people, and you compare all of that to God's grace and God's mercy towards Paul, I don't know how we can't be awed by the magnificence of God's grace. The depth of our sin magnifies the goodness of God. I think this is where people go wayward both in belief and behavior. We compare ourselves to others rather than to God. I've said that before with behavior. I think most of us understand that. Most of us would probably agree. What I, I mean by that is we look at ourselves and we look at others and we say, I may be not as good as this person over here, but I'm doing better than this person. I've got them beat. And so we judge ourselves okay because we're better than a few others. And even professing believers do this. What happens is we compare ourselves and then we grow complacent in our faith. But the standard is never to compare ourselves with others. The standard is always to compare ourselves with God. But I see this with belief as well. Allow me to explain that a little bit and qualify that. A couple weeks ago, I shared some thoughts with Bethany that I was thinking through. And as we talked, we were talking about people that we knew, not so much in our own life, maybe a few, but more importantly, people that have been influential in Christianity as a whole well-known theologians and pastors, and how they've drifted away from the truth. These are people that God has used in our lives, and yet they've gone away. In some cases, they've gone into some very strange theologies. And I think we can all point to people in our lifetime that have done this. Maybe we've done it. We probably know people personally that have done it. There are a lot of reasons for that, but what I think, I think a contributing factor, at least what I've noticed in several of those situations, is that 
In their lives, they compared themselves to others and not to God. What do I mean by that? Last week, I talked about how we posture ourselves towards the world, little by little. But I think we do that even in what we believe, not just in how we behave. And, and as an example, if we were to take this side and say, this is, this is being biblical, this is where biblical fidelity lies, and, and over here is, yeah, you're getting squishy, probably disagree, get scared, and what here's, you're almost apostate. Colossians chapter 3 says that what we should do is set our minds on the things of heaven, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That means we orient ourselves towards God and the things of God. But we always want a hand in the world. We're worried we're going to miss out. And so what I think people do is they, they sit here in this belief and this biblical doctrine, but they posture towards the world. So they have their eyes on the world. First off, that gets us wayward. But then what we do is we, we compare ourselves to people. We have this person here who's, they've been an inspiration for us. We've learned a lot from them. They're solid. We have this person we've learned a lot from too. And then we've got those over here that we would reject. They're, they're going wayward. And so we compare ourselves. Okay, this person, I have a couple of disagreements, but they're still biblical. But I, I'm still, I'm on this side of them. We can be friends. And then what happens is you're saying, I'm, I'm okay because I'm still this way. I'm closer to God than they are. And then there are these changes. And that person goes further this way. They're, they're, they're going more towards apostasy. But we still compare ourselves to that person. I'm doing okay because I'm on this side. What we haven't realized is we've actually, we've moved with them. And in this way, we start drifting away from God because we're not comparing ourselves to God, we're comparing ourselves to people. I think this explains in part some of the reason that people depart from the sufficiency of God, both in belief and in behavior. What needs to happen is we need to more quickly adopt the posture of Paul, to look upon our own hearts and with intense scrutiny say about our sins what God would say and let him be a judge of grace. When we are more disgraced by who we are, we are more amazed by who God is. And when we are more amazed by who God is, we become more disgraced about who we are. And you end up in this cycle. What should happen is it should make us more grateful that we've been recipients of mercy rather than recipients of wrath. And we see all the more that Christ is a judge of grace or a judge by grace. Finally, we see that Christ is a mediator of grace. Where there is abundant sin of people, there is the abundant grace of God. The Apostle Paul exemplifies this well, and he writes, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Recounting a person's sin is sometimes embarrassing. Oftentimes it brings about shame or guilt, even if those sins have been dealt with. But Paul never hides away who he is. 
He shares his sins freely and frequently. But he never does it in this sort of self-abasement kind of way. It's not a, a false humility. He always does it to point to God. In an age when it's acceptable to hide one's faults and, and pass blame as just a means of self-protection, I find it reassuring that Paul exemplifies this. Where we see the greatness of sin, we see the greatness of God. And I think this contributes to the difficulty of getting people to come to Christ these days. I think it contributes to a difficulty in getting some of us to spend more time with the Lord. There lacks a conviction of sin. But we live in a Romans 1 world. A Romans 1 world that calls evil good and good evil. And when sin isn't called sin, there's no need for a savior from sin. On a regular basis, Paul points to the abundance of his own sin, but always in order to point the, to the abundance of God's grace. He tells the Romans, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He does offer a clarification, making sure that the Romans understood, and anybody who reads this letter understands that God's grace is not an excuse for sin. And so he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Though God's grace is more than sufficient, it never justifies sin. Based on the severity of his sin, Paul should have expected the very opposite of grace. But Paul not only received grace, he says it overflowed. Some of your versions may say it abounded. Nobody emphasizes like Paul does. And what he is emphasizing here is, is not that just grace was here, that the grace of the Lord prevailed, but he emphasizes how abundant that grace is. God's grace outpaced all of Paul's sin so that no matter how much Paul sinned, it was always sufficiently covered by God's grace. But notice how that grace was manifested through faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ acts as a mediator of that grace. And how does he do that? By the gospel, of course. His work on the cross to be the sacrifice of sin and his resurrection showing his ability to conquer all sin and the Lord's means of imparting that grace then become through Christ. It was the most loving act of all, one in which he imparted faith to those who would believe. And Jesus then is the, the mediator of grace. In 1911, at the age of 61, give or take, Julia Johnston wrote of the Lord's grace. And she said, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Indeed, how marvelous grace is. It has the ability to overcome sin. It has the ability to overcome wrongs. It has the ability to overcome our guilt. And the ability to overcome our shame. Or even the ability to overcome our condemnation. As Julia Johnston says, it exceeds our sin and our guilt. And then she goes on to write... Sin and despair, like sea waves, 
cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater. This is God's grace. It is grace that will pardon, she says, and grace that will cleanse within. Those words speak to the sufficiency of God's grace because it is without limits, overflowing like those falls of Niagara. The grace of God is sufficient for all aspects of our lives. It not only covers our sins, but it will cover our weaknesses and our failures. And in those times of sin and weakness and failure, then it covers, or covers us from the penalty of that. And then it goes further and grace strengthens us to hopefully so we won't do it again. The Lord's grace provides comfort in times of pain. It brings hope in times of despair. It does not matter how great the need or how deep the wounds. God's grace is always sufficient, being given by him without limits. But if God's grace is sufficient for me, why is it not sufficient for others? I have to ask that question. If God's grace is sufficient for me, why is it not sufficient for others? I have to assume that that is what is being taught in churches and that that is what people believe because that's how people act. That may sound harsh. That may sound critical. But think about the behavior of people and what it says about what they believe about God's grace. When disagreement arises, the first response is not one of grace. It's one of division. At the slightest disagreement, too frequently, churches split. And I get that that's the Baptist model for church planting these days. That doesn't make it correct. I joke, I like Baptist. <laughs> but even individually, at the slightest disagreement, we will leave, or at least threaten to leave, without ever taking action to let God's grace bring reconciliation and restoration. Consider the declining participation in the Great Commission. What does that say about what people believe about God's grace? If we truly believe that God's grace is sufficient for everybody, our priority would be to see that grace be made effective in another person's life. And we would see that or participate in that by participating in the Great Commission and by making disciples. For how often are we unwilling to confront somebody for sin? We would rather allow a person to persist in that sin than for us to be made uncomfortable by talking to them about it, or even talking about our own, for that matter. See, but if God's grace is sufficient to overcome my sin and our sin, why would we not trust it to be sufficient to overcome that person's sin and talk to them about it? The grace of God is sufficient for salvation and sanctification. And so we need to expose ourselves to the grace of God. The greatness of our sin magnifies the greatness of his grace. Let's pray.
Our Father God, indeed, you are God of grace. We have been privileged, Lord, to see that grace affected and at work in our own lives, Lord. But Father, I pray that that would not be something we take for granted. But Lord, that that would cause us to see who you are and expound upon your greatness and be magnified and in, in awe of who you are, Lord. Father, may your grace not be a cause or an excuse for us to sin. But Father, may it be, a, it be a cause to look upon you more and draw near to you when we do fall into that, Lord. Father, we're so grateful that you are a God of grace, that you judge us by grace, that you've made grace effective in our lives, and that you enable and strengthen us with grace, Lord. Father, may we live then in your grace always. We give all of this to you just thankful and in awe of all of that. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.